Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with me as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been pointing out in this series of programs concentrating on Jesus' favorite topic, His Gospel or Good News about the Kingdom, we've been pointing out that Jesus was a Jew who must be understood in his first century Palestinian environment. Well, you may say that sounds very scholarly and difficult. What if I'm just an ordinary Bible reader? How can I find out about the background of Jesus? The answer to that question is quite simple. You must read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, in order to understand what Jesus was about. Jesus, you see, did not come to destroy that 77% of our Bible we call the Old Testament. Indeed, he said he came to fulfill the promises contained in the Old Testament. Jesus made the stupendous claim that he was the promised Messiah, the ultimate king of the line of David, who would re-establish the throne of Israel and liberate Palestine from all foreign enemies and rule the world in power and glory. That was Jesus' claim. As we know, in fact, he never did rule Palestine as king. There was one occasion in the sixth chapter of John when the people tried to force Jesus to be king, but he declined and hurried away with all urgency. You see, he knew that it was not God's time for him to ascend the royal throne of Israel, the throne of David, and rule in Jerusalem, rule the world, in fact, from Jerusalem, because, as you probably know, the prophets of Israel had constantly predicted that the Messiah, the ultimate king of Israel, who Jesus claimed to be, would eventually rise to the position of king and rule the land of Israel in peace and security forever. There are some today who find this story rather fantastic. But you know, the resurrection of Jesus seemed to be like an idle tale. When the disciples first heard it, what we're not used to hearing, or what we've not studied properly, what we've not been taught thoroughly, seems strange and wrong at first hearing. But the essence of a good Berean is that he studies the Scriptures daily to see if what he's hearing is true. You may be wondering what a good Berean is. I'm referring there to the text in Acts 17, verse 11, where the people were commended because they thoroughly investigated what they were hearing from Paul, and the result was that they became true believers. If we have an idea presented to us, we should not reject it out of hand, but search the Scriptures daily and compare what we're hearing with the gold standard, with the perfect standard provided by Scripture itself. Some people think that the kingdom of God, of which Jesus spoke so often, is simply the church now. Nothing could be further from the biblical truth. There's a vast difference between the church and the kingdom. The church certainly is preparing for the kingdom. The members of the church are the potential rulers of the kingdom. But the kingdom of God is quite different from the church. It's easy to demonstrate that fact, and I'm going to do so in a moment from Acts 1. If you have a Bible... I would encourage you to open it at the first chapter of Acts, where you can demonstrate beyond any possible doubt that the kingdom of God is not a synonym for the church. The idea that the kingdom is the church dates from several centuries after the Bible was written. It was the very philosophically-minded church leader, Augustine, who proposed that the church was the same as the kingdom. But that's not true to the biblical facts, as we can show from the first chapter of Acts. We've been asking the question, if in fact the royal throne of David was promised to Jesus in perpetuity, 
as a fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. You remember that Abraham was promised the land forever and also a distinguished seed who is Jesus according to Galatians 3.16. And David was promised a perpetual dynasty in his house. A distinguished descendant of the royal Jewish house of David was promised a permanent occupant of his throne eventually in Jerusalem. It was that promise which Gabriel, the archangel, brought to Mary when the angel visited Mary and announced that her son would be given the throne of his father David and he would rule over the house of Israel forever. You'll find that wonderful visitation of Gabriel to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 35. The idea that God would one day send his king, his Messiah, to rule on the throne of David in Jerusalem forever was fundamental to what the prophets of Israel had foreseen. You remember the famous prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. In that prophecy, God said, A child will be born to us, to Israel that is, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Divine Hero, Father of the Coming Age, and the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That was the central promise which God had made, not only to Abraham and to David, but to the faithful of all times in Israel. They were eagerly expecting that great promise to be fulfilled. When Jesus was born, the Christians believed that he was indeed that promised Messiah. He was the child, the Son of God. He was the one born into the family of Israel, and he was the one who would permanently occupy the throne of David. And his government would, in fact, become the first successful world government, Jesus as president of the world would ensure that the nations would disarm, that there would be no hungry or starving in the world, that there would be an absence of adultery and child abuse and murder, of incest and pornography, and everything that the world now should desire. All of that would come to pass when the Messiah would rule from his throne in Jerusalem, and the earth would be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Well, how, you may ask, can that royal promise be fulfilled in view of the fact that Jesus is no longer with us physically? He's, in fact, at the right hand of the Father. But it's obvious that those great promises of peace and security have not come to pass. The kingdom of God is not here. It's not the same as the church. If the kingdom was the church, then there would be international disarmament and the absence of poverty and crime and so on. But the kingdom is not the church. The church is preparing for the kingdom, but we're still praying as Jesus commanded, Thy kingdom come. And you don't pray for something to come which has already come. Let's see then how the Bible tells us that this great promise of royal office for Jesus is going to be fulfilled. And don't forget that that royal promise goes deep into the Hebrew Bible, deep into the roots of the faith in the Old Testament, according to the contract and covenant made with Abraham and later with David. This can only happen if Jesus comes back to the earth and restores the lost and forgotten throne of Israel in Jerusalem. It's only at the second coming in the establishment of the kingdom of David on this earth renewed that the great promises of the Bible can be fulfilled. It's only when that happens, when Jesus returns to take up his position on the throne of David, 
that God's promises can be vindicated. It's simply a myth to imagine that the throne of David is supposed to be off beyond the sky. That would be as impossible as imagining that the throne of England had now somehow been transferred to Moscow or to Egypt or Japan. When the angel Gabriel promised to Mary that her son would sit on the throne of David, everyone knew what the throne of David was and where it had to be one day. Now today, some 2,000 years later, because the faith has been put through the ringer of various traditional church ideas, it's very difficult for churchgoers and Bible readers to relate sympathetically with the Davidic messianic ideas of the Bible. Some people seem to think that the throne of David was taken off to heaven, where Jesus now is at the right hand of the Father. We can demonstrate that this is quite clearly not true. In Acts chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, Luke gives us a wonderful basis for understanding God's plan in history. In verse 6 of Acts 1, the apostles, after being instructed in a six-week seminar on the kingdom of God, Jesus' favorite topic, Acts 1, verse 3, they asked their famous and final last question to Jesus. The apostles said, Has the time now come, finally, for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1, verse 6. That's to say, Jesus are you now going to take up your legally constituted position as the rightful ruler of the throne of David in Jerusalem? Now notice very carefully how Jesus replied to their very important and well-informed question. Jesus said, It's not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has reserved in his own authority. It's not for you to know, in other words, the time when this restoration of the kingdom is going to happen. You cannot know when the kingdom is going to come, but you're going to be filled with the Spirit in a few days from now. That's the gist of Jesus' answer in Acts 1, verses 5 through 7. Now, it's obvious from that conversation, that critically important conversation, and one much neglected by preachers, it's obvious that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost was to be in a few days' time. But the coming of the kingdom was to be in the future at a time unknown. The coming of the Spirit, therefore, at the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, cannot possibly be the same as the inauguration of the kingdom of God. The whole idea that we sometimes hear taught that the kingdom is the same as the church, which was baptized at the ascension of Jesus, is false to the New Testament documents. Read it for yourselves carefully in Acts 1, verses 5 to 7. The coming of the Spirit is to be quite specifically, Jesus said, within a few days' time from then. But the coming of the kingdom is to be at a time in the future not known. Now, it must be perfectly obvious that an event which is going to happen in a few days' time cannot be the same event as one coming at some time in the more distant future. The coming of the kingdom is therefore not the same as the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit in the New Testament is a down payment a first installment of our future inheritance of the kingdom. But please don't confuse the down payment with the thing itself. The down payment is the engagement ring, if you like, the engagement ring for the future marriage of the Lamb to the church. And that marriage cannot take place before Jesus comes back. But the engagement, as we all know, is not the same as the marriage ceremony. There's all the difference in the world between the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and the stupendous event of the future coming of the kingdom of God, for which Jesus commands us to pray, Thy kingdom come. 
If you've been led to believe that the kingdom of God is simply a synonym for the church, I would urge you to study that matter most carefully. It's rather like saying that next week is the same as this week. It confuses the present with the future. The presence of the kingdom now is via the Spirit. The kingdom is to be preached. The kingdom is to be tasted through the Spirit. But the kingdom itself is not yet here. The kingdom of God will only come when in that day you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sitting in the kingdom of God. And that's going to happen only when Jesus returns from heaven. It's an easy matter to prove in the Gospel of Matthew, and in fact throughout the New Testament, that the kingdom is not the same as the church. Take, for example, Jesus' famous statement in Matthew 19 and verse 28. Jesus there said to the apostles, Truly I say to you, you who have followed me, in the new world, when the world is reborn, when the Son of Man is going to sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so the question is, when is that time that the Son of Man is going to sit on his glorious throne and the world is going to be reborn? Well, let's go to another passage in Matthew which defines the time of the sitting of the Son of Man on his throne with absolute clarity. In Matthew 25, we read this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Did you catch that? When the Son of Man comes, that's at his second coming, it is then that he sits on his glorious throne. And according to that other verse in Matthew 19:28, it's in the new world, when the world is reborn, that the Son of Man sits on his throne. And the apostles are going to assume positions of rulership and responsibility with Jesus in that kingdom. We invite you to ponder God's great plan in history and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.